Well, it's great for me to be here this morning. I, uh, Bruce and I both travel quite a bit to Latvia with uh, Ilvars. And uh, when I'm in Latvia, I consistently get two questions all the time. The first one is, how difficult is it traveling with Ilvars? And, uh, well, you can answer that, can't you, Bruce? And then the second question is, do you know Bruce Hess? Have you met Bruce Hess? And it doesn't matter where you're at in Latvia or where you go in Latvia, uh, people have heard of Bruce Hess because that's the most popular radio program there is, uh, the messages that he sends there. And that's been a great, great blessing to the people, and I really appreciate you participating in that. Uh, I have a very, very simple message, and truth isn't preached, it's demonstrated. And that message, and you'll hear me say it over and over again, is that I have Christ on this hand and problems on this hand. And when problems are my focus and I can't see Christ, I'm undone. But when Christ is my focus, even though the problems are still there, I don't go to pieces. And so the focus on Christ is the key thing. In Fiji, in the market, there's an old man, and he sits on a grass mat, and he likes to play this game with everyone where you come up and mention any song that you know and see if he can sing it and if he can play it. And so it doesn't matter what song you pick, he can play it. And I was standing there watching him one day with an old man, uh, Uncle Mesu, uh, who's a famous old Christian there. And Mesu watched him, and Mesu gave him a few songs, and I gave him a few songs, and he was able to play them and sing them. And then Mesu asked him a question. He said, I notice that when other people play the guitar, they move their fingers up and down the frets. But you never do move your fingers. You just keep them in the same place and play any song. And it was amazing to watch. He just kept them in one place, and whatever song you picked, he would sing it. And Uncle Mesu said, how do you do that? And he said, it's really, he said, it's simple. The reason other people are moving their fingers up and down the frets is that they're all looking for the note that I found. <laughs> well, when you find the perfect note, there's no need to move from that note. And I found that note some 37 years ago when someone told me that Jesus was actually all I needed. And I invited him into my life, and my life hasn't been the same since that day. Now, this morning... He's alive. And I want you to receive something from him. And so I begin every service the same way, where I just quietly say, Jesus, you're welcome here. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Father, you're welcome here. I don't want to hear a word from man. I want to hear a word from you. Because one word from him is worth a thousand from men. Amen? And we just trust that you would leave here with one thing this morning. I wanted to talk about a couple of the obstacles in the Christian life and what the normal Christian life looks like. I was asked that question recently in Brazil with a group of pastors. What does the normal Christian life look like? Well, there's about a billion and a half Christians in the world, and probably this year there will be 100 or maybe 200 verifiable miracles where somebody walked on water and someone raised the dead and someone says that they were caught up into heaven. Now, I don't know what 100 is out of 1.5 billion, but it's not very many, is it? And so the question as to what is the normal Christian life probably isn't going to be defined by those 100 people. 
And yet we see those things and often those things are the things that we long for. We long for the spectacular. But if you want to know what the normal Christian life is, all you have to do is go look in a mirror because you're living it. And this is exactly what Christian life looks like to us. And there's certain processes that God puts us into, and we were talking about that over the weekend, that God has a priority and he works according to his priority. And so we have a list of things that we would like him to do in our lives and in the lives of the people around us, but that list may not be his list, and he's going to work in order. And so I wanted to look at a couple of the things that he works in, in order uh, in the Christian's life and something that we can look forward to him doing. You all know the story of Rachel and Leah, and uh, they were married, and Jacob was with them for 20 years in his father-in-law's land. He worked very hard, and the father-in-law was constantly trying to rip Jacob off. And every bad thing, God made a good thing for him. Now, it was amazing because when he got ready to leave the land, he had basically plundered the land and he possessed everything. And the daughters had watched the God of their husband, who they believed in, Jehovah, bless them over and over and over and over again until they leave the two wealthiest women there. Now, when they got ready to leave, though, there was one thing that didn't belong to them that they went and got and they took with them. Do you remember what that was? They wanted the household idols. And why did they want the household idols? Do you know that all of us in this room have idols? That we have something under stress and pressure that we trust other than God? And the proof that you have idols is that you're here today because idols help us cope with life. Idols help us when we're under pressure. And these people on the front row here never found a way to cope, and that's why they're not here this morning. Because if you can't cope anymore, you just check out. And I know that no one here was born with Christ. There are no second-generation Christians. And so you had to find a way to cope before you came to Christ. And we have this invisible bag of idols that we carry with us. And here's kind of what it looks like. Well, Father, I give up on my husband. I can't change my husband. I can't do the work that you need to do in his life. I've been talking to him for years, and he just won't change. I release him to you. I give him completely to you. But if he doesn't change by Friday, what do I have in here? I'll manipulate and I might control and I might drop covert messages and I'll try doing all these things to bring about the changes that I believe that he needs in his life. We have things that we trust other than God. And so when you look at Israel, Israel came out of Egypt and they came out of Egypt by looking up to God or looking to themselves. How did they get out? They looked up to God. And it depends on how fast you walk uh, Ray, a friend of mine, was in Ireland, and he asked a fellow, how far is it to the church? And the guy said, I don't know. And Ray started walking, and he said, about 15 minutes. And Ray said, I thought you didn't know how far it was. And he said, well, I had to see you walk first. <laughs> well, you can say that it's 8 to 11 day walk over here, and it took them 40 years to get there. And why did it take them 40 years? And, you know, it's not like they covered a lot of territory. They were just going in a circle. 
One of the airports that I despise is the airport in Dubai. They built a new one, but the old one was only about the size of this room, and it was two levels in a circle. And in an eight-hour layover, all you did was walk in the circle. You just walked in the circle, eight hours in the circle. There wasn't anything else to do, and I was there with my dad a, a year ago, and we spent eight hours walking in a circle. And finally, I said to him, hey, hey, I think I know those two guys ahead of us. I can see the back of their heads. He said, who is it? And I said, it's us. You just keep going in a circle, in a circle, in a circle. And I believe Israel was out there going in a circle, and the last guy could see the first guy. And we're told in the Bible that the reason they were walking in a circle is that they refused to forsake their idols. Can you imagine walking through the sea and yet carrying and having hidden these idols that you trust other than God? And we all have those kind of idols, those things that we trust. And all you have to do is go back in your life and look at the pressure points in your life and ask yourself, what did you trust then? One pastor was telling me about growing up with an alcoholic father and the alcoholism increased, increased, increased and his father started beating his mother. And what he would do then is go and hide underneath his bed. Well, what would you rather do? Hide under the bed or watch your mother be beat? I'd rather hide under the bed. And one day he was hiding under the bed and he found his father's pornography. What would you rather do? Look at Miss October or watch your mother be beat? And he found that when he was hiding and looking at these things, he didn't hear any of the conflict that was going on around him. At 16, he became a Christian. He went to Bible college. He went to seminary. He started a church. And now at age 45, his children are rebelling. His wife is threatening to leave him. And the church wants to fire him. If you were Satan and your job is to kill, steal, and destroy, what would you tempt him in? What? Pornography, why? Because he still remembers that in the past it helped him with his pressure. And so he goes back to the pornography and he starts hiding and looking at it. But here's the problem. Once you recognized Christ and once he became your life, you cannot wear the old clothes that you used to wear that the old man wore. And a simple example of that is we'll take a break and everyone go home and put on the clothes that you wore when you were seven years old and come back. How comfortable will you be? Well, you could wear them when you were seven, but you can't wear them now. And once Christ has become your life, and anyone who's in Christ is a brand new creation, you can no longer wear the old things. And so the old ways of coping and the old idols and the old things that I trusted really don't work anymore. And so he hides and he looks at those things and it doesn't help. Now what do you think the enemy whispers? Do more do more. It's just because you're not doing enough. And as we were saying, there's some very, very ugly idols, dr drugs, sex, and alcohol. Those are ugly idols. Then there's grade B idols. People cope by watching videos, by exercising, by listening to sad music, by uh, reading, by escaping. And I'm not saying they're always idols. I'm saying it can be an idol for you. What are you trusting under stress and pressure? Now, here is the proof of idolatry. Because there are certain symptoms that come about in people's lives, believers, when they're trusting something other than God. And here's how you know you're dealing with an idolater. Because when you're talking to them, they're full of worry and doubt and fear 
and anxiety and depression because they're trusting something other than God. I am not going to say that I have a God and live like I don't have a God. I do have a God. I do have a God that I can trust. And these symptoms appear when I'm trusting something other than Him. I will keep Him in perfect peace whose eyes are on me. If they're on anything else and you put your hope in anything else, you're going to have these symptoms. These are also the symptoms of religion, and we were talking about that this weekend, that there are many, many religions in the world, but it's not right to say there are many faiths. There's only one faith. Because every religion has this in common. Success rests at your feet in something you do and something that you're trusting other than the one true God. And in Christianity and in the one true faith, we're trusting Him. We're not trusting anything else. Now, again, when you see these things in your life, don't sweep the cobwebs. Go for the spider and get it knocked down. Now, God wants us to get rid of our idols. He wants us to trust him, not so he'll be happy, but so I'll be happy. So I can have peace in my life, and I can expand my concept of God and see that he does much more than I ever thought that he could do, that I can actually live like a sparrow. And so there's a process that every believer has to go through, and it looks something like this. At some point in time, you accepted Christ as your Savior, and you knew that you could not get yourself into heaven. You know, one of my friends who's a pastor said this. He said, I'm embarrassed, but for 20 years as a pastor, the message of grace ended as soon as somebody came forward. You can't do it. You can't get yourself into heaven. Only God can do it for you. It's got to be Jesus. You need Jesus. You've heard the message, haven't you? And then he said when people came forward, one of the first things he did before they left is to give them a stack of books like this and say, now you need to do this to live the Christian life. You can't get into heaven, but you somehow, if you'll follow all these books, you're going to be able to live the Christian life, and it isn't possible. I want a bigger God, and to find out that I have a bigger God, I have to be in a situation that I can't handle. And so we start out with salvation, and we know that he'll take me into heaven. Now, I don't know if you're interested in this, but I find that many people are. I'm really not that interested in going to heaven. I want to find out how to get out of my daily hell today. The Irish say this, I don't want pie in the sky and the sweet by and by. I want steak in me plate while I wait. And so I want to experience some of these things today. I want to know what it means that I'm free. And that he gave me life and he gave me abundant life. And so what he does for me, and this is the normal Christian life, is he puts me in a downward situation that I try to fix, not by looking to him, but trying to fix it in my own strength and my own power. And so it's the same thing as driving a stick shift in a car. And what we do is by staying, or in, staying in first gear in a car, we never realize the potential of the engine. And so you know many uh, people that you tried to teach how to drive, and I tried to teach my daughter how to drive, and it nearly drove me to drink. And I remember being in the car with her and just praying, well, God, go ahead and kill me. Just kill me now because I can't have this knot in my stomach any longer trying to teach her how to drive. She was one of those people that powers into the stop sign. 
You know, I don't, you slow down to the stop sign, not her, no, you power into the stop sign, then you hammer your brakes and slide a little bit into the intersection. And one day I told her we had to get on the highway. Now we're going to merge. We're going to be in the merging lane. We're in the merging lane. We're going to have to shift gears because we have to go faster. But she wouldn't shift gears. She just kept it in first gear going, wee. And I said, love, we have to go faster. You've got to merge. You've got to give it more gas. Wee. And finally, as we're going and I'm watching the engine red line and get hot, she shifted it and it goes, wah. Doesn't that feel good? And there are a lot of Christians that in their situation, it's a situation that you cannot fix. Do you know that if you could change a person's will, Paul wouldn't have written the epistles. He would have just changed their will. He made an appeal to them to be able to choose. And yet we look at our family members, we look at our children, we look at our neighbors, we look at the people around us, and we're all the time trying to get them to change their will and our strength. And we're trying to sort things out in our own strength, and we're just like that person that refuses to shift, and we're whining. And whenever you meet a Christian that's whining, the solution is to shift gears. And so we get put in a situation that we can't fix, we try to fix it in the strength of self, we try to fix it with our idols, and we're whining and whining and whining. And now we try to turn it around because we've got to live this life, this Christian life, and he puts us in another situation that I can't fix. And I have a returning habit. I have a deed of the flesh that comes back. I have a marriage that I can't sort out. I've got a rebellious child. I've got illness. And I try to fix it and fix it and fix it when he really wants me, just as I gave up here and said, I can't get myself into heaven. He would like me to be convicted of my weakness and say, I can't live the Christian life either. So would you come and be my life today? And I'll tell you a secret. If you fix the fix that God fixed to fix you, he'll fix another fix to fix you. And brother, you'll be fixed. And do you know one of the hardest things that we do is to watch someone that we love spiraling down and not want to turn them around and try to help them? And one of the things I remember when I'm discipling people is I'm never discipling them for today. I'm discipling them for five years from today. I'm not that worried about today. But five years from, day, from today, where are they going to be? I visited a family and I had to laugh watching this because I spent the night there and they had a, a three-year-old son that was so out of control, he might have been about four, but he was so out of control, the only way they got him to go to bed at night was to put Oreos on every step going up to the door. And so when it was time to go to bed, they got the Oreos out like you're getting out dog biscuits. And they're putting these things on the steps and down the hall and all the way up and into the bedroom. And then they had a lock on the outside. So when he went in for the last cookie, you locked him up. <laughs> you see people spiraling down. You want to coddle them. But God wants them to come to the end. And we come to the end and we're ready to give up and say, I cannot live this Christian life. You know, I'm very, very grateful for legalism because every one of us in this room needs to pass through it. Because our flesh thinks that we can live the Christian life when the Bible's very clear that it's hostile to God. Only one man ever lived the Christian life, and that was Christ. And the only way you'll live it is if you invite him to come and live it through you. And you only invite him at your point of weakness. Christians do not fail at their point of weakness. They fail where they think they're strong. 
they fail where they think they can do it. I would not get up here and preach without saying, Jesus, come and be my words. I wouldn't do a funeral without saying, Jesus, come and be my words. But the odd thing is I'll walk home every night and step in the front door and never say, Jesus, come and be my words because I'm strong at home. And where do you think I get attacked? At home where I didn't need him, where I didn't see my weakness. And so the situations that are coming into your life are not in your life as something to frustrate you, but there's something to bring about in your life full salvation. Now I'll say this and, and listen to what I'm saying and don't react to what I'm saying and go home and look at your concordance and you'll see that I'm right and I give this challenge in a lot of Bible schools and seminaries. But do you know that heaven will be full of unsaved people? It'll be packed full. Because to get into heaven, you must be born again. But go to your concordance and look up the word salvation and saved, and it always refers to life today. Israel says, where's the God of our salvation? They're not looking forward to going to heaven. They're saying, where's my help coming from today? And the angel appeared to Mary and said, and you shall call his name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. He does forgive us, but wouldn't you like to get saved? Have you confessed to the point that your confessors wore out? Have you rededicated to the point your rededicators wore out? Paul says the gospel is foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, I thought that he was saved. And we've equated salvation with being born again. And what I'm saying is, is that many, many believers are born again. Well, they all are. They're going to heaven. That's, that's a fact. But they've never been delivered from anything. They've never been saved from anything. In their initial acceptance of Christ, they've been saved from hell. But he would like to save you from yourself and from circumstances and from events. And to not let the things of this life steal the peace of God from you. And that happens in my weakness when I begin to invite him in. And I see that he was in this downward spiral where I can give up. I want to share in the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of suffering, and be like him in his death. And the proof of resurrection power is the marks of death. Touch my sides and touch my hand and see that it's me. And he walks with us through this process to bring us to the end of ourselves. I was sharing that I was uh, in uh, Ghana and going to a remote area, and they didn't have any uh, roads and they didn't have any trails and they didn't have any maps. So I had to have a guide, and they hired me a guide. Well, the guide shows up, and I've been waiting quite a while for him. And he walks up to me, and he says, Hi, I'm still alive. And I looked at him and said, Right, I'm still alive, too. And he said, No, uh, I'm still alive. And I said, Uh-huh, and I'm still alive. And he said, No. My name is still alive. I said, I don't want a guide named still alive. Why would I want a guide named still alive? I want a guide that's named I've never lost a missionary. I've never been in trouble. I don't want a guide named I'm still alive. I said, why do they call you still alive? And he got a smile on his face that only an African can get. And he started to undo his shirt with great pride. And he opened it up and across his chest was the mark of a lion. And he kept the wound very clean as a very puffy scar, and it was a big thing. And he looked at me with a big smile, and he said, I met a lion, and I conquered it. 
and they changed my name to Still Alive. You're safe with me. See these wounds? That proves that you're safe with me. And in this life, as I walk through the process of coming to the end of myself, I know that I'm safe because I'm alive in the one who is still alive. He walks with me and he takes me through the process of coming to the end and just saying today, I can't, but you can. And those are the two words that he loves to hear more than any other two words is that I can't. And when I say that I can't, all of a sudden I discover that he can do so much more through me than I ever imagined that he was able to do. It's not right that we say we have a God and we live like we don't have a God. We should be light and we should be people uh, that can look in the mirror in the midst of the worst stress and have a good laugh because we have a God and he's in charge of, er of everything. You know what most Christians' lives are like? They get up in the morning, they got a backpack, and they start filling it with bricks. And this brick is the kids, and this brick is the finances, and this brick is their husband, and this brick is their relatives, and this brick is the job, and this brick is uh, um, my finances, this brick is my habit. And we go on and on and on, and we fill the bag with our bricks, and we put the bag on, and it cuts into our shoulders, and then we head out the front door with a stack of tracks to witness to the abundant life of Jesus. Would you like to know Jesus, brother? I was never suicidal till I accepted Christ. Would you like to know him? <laughs> his burden is light and his load is so easy. Would you like to know him? Would you like to be like me? And you hand out, and we lie to people because we're carrying too much. And Jesus pulls up alongside us an old pickup truck and he says, Mike, you want a ride? And I go, I need one. I'm exhausted. I get in the truck. And I start going along, and I still have on my bag. And we're bouncing along, and it's cutting into my shoulders. And I say, Jesus, I still got some tracks. If you'll get close to the road, I'll hand them out. Hey, look at me. I'm with Jesus. Wouldn't you like to be me? See the joy of the Lord? And we're handing this out. He came that you might have life and have it more miserably. How would you like to come along? And Jesus looks at me and says, Mike, why don't you throw that in the back seat? Just throw that bag in the back, in the trunk. Get rid of it. And I go, no, Lord, I can't ask you to carry that too. But the fact is, if he's carrying me, he is carrying it, isn't he? But I'm not enjoying the trip. I don't have to care because he carries. And it takes a long time to discover that. But you're in the process right now not to be frustrated but to see that he carries. And do you know what? You people today have a history with God, don't you? And sometimes your history will carry you when nothing else will carry you. And you have a history with him this morning that he's brought you this far. And he brought all, many of us this far without us asking. And now that you ask, how much further is he going to take you? Now, here's the second problem. We're trusting in something other than him He's put us in a situation so we'll give up on those things by a choice of our own will and we'll throw them aside and we'll invite him to come and be our life every moment of every day. But here's a problem. A lot of people look at Jesus and they're frightened by him. They don't want to, they don't want to draw near to him. I really had to laugh when a, a husband and couple came to my office 
and they were telling me all their problems and what was going on in their marriage. And I said, well, I've really got some good news for you. And the good news is this, Jesus is going to sort the whole thing out. And you know what the woman said to me? Well, we were hoping that you would do something. Jesus will sort it out, but I'm hoping you would do something. And many of us run around looking for somebody that'll do something. And what we're really doing with God is we're doing this to him. Come here, but stay away. Come here, but stay away. And what it is, is with my mind, I run to God. But with my emotions, I'm running away from God. I'm frightened by him. And many people are in that state of being an unbelieving believer. Now, you will go to heaven, but you're going to keep living in hell. Because we can't release the situation to him. Do you know that there is no such thing as an intellectual atheist? And if you know one, I would like to meet them because they do not exist. People are not unbelieving in their minds. They're unbelieving in their emotions and then making up the excuses in their mind. And you have a mental concept of God, but you also have an emotional concept of God. And that emotional concept is the thing that drives you. And many of you that have had to struggle with depression, with anxiety, with panic, in your mind, you look around you, there's no reason to be depressed, but your emotions feel that and they drive you and they control you. And in the same way, our emotions rule over us. And have you ever taken a look at your emotions? What are your emotions? What is your emotional concept of God? We give people a little test and in that test, we just talk about how do you feel about God? And I have people answer these questions, how they would answer them at their very worst moment. Because when does Satan attack you? At your very worst moment. And so I say, how would you answer these questions at your very worst moment? How do you feel about God? Because I want to know how you feel and have you ever discussed that? Have you ever thought about that? And so the first question is, when I think about God, I feel, and most people say love, and I go, yes, I went to Sunday school too, but at your very worst moment, how do you feel? Well, I feel like he's not there, like he doesn't help. When I have to trust God, I feel like he won't come through. When I think about God, I just wish he would hear me. I wish he would talk to me. I wish he would answer me. Sometimes I get angry with God when he does nothing. It frustrates me when God wants me to do things that I can't do. This is how people normally answer these things. I really enjoy God. Well, I don't have any enjoyment. The one thing I would change about myself to please God is everything. Just start at the toenails and work up. I haven't been able to find anything that's right with me and that would be right with God. When I think about God's commandments, I feel like a failure. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop, and I know one day he's going to get me. And this is an interesting question, and I have so many people answer it this way. Um... Sometimes I wish God would just take me home. For years, I called myself a suicidal rapturist. I wanted Jesus to come, not because I wanted to see Jesus, but I wanted to get out of this mess. I wanted to leave this mess because I couldn't live it, and it wasn't working out for me. I can really depend on God for nothing. In my relationship with God, I'm always sure that he's going to get me. The one thing that frightens me about God is his judgment. God surprises me if he ever helps. And a lot of women will answer this last question this way. When I think, uh, the one thing I'm afraid God will do is take one of my children to get my attention. 
Have you ever felt those kind of things? Not all of them, but some of them. And so now we end up with a concept of God that's emotional. So I was talking to an atheist, and he was mocking Christians. And I said, listen, you can go back to mocking Christians, you can go back to mocking me, but would you first take this test? So he took the test, and we got done his concept of God, and we looked at it, that God was kind of there, and he was not there, and that God didn't help, and that God was going to explode, and God was going to take something of yours that you loved and kill it, and, uh, and then God was going to, when he exploded, probably abuse you. That's how he felt about God. And so he told me that, and then he said, you know, all Christians are hypocrites. And I said, oh, every one of them is. And he said, well, you know, all Christians are greedy. And I said, oh, man, when you go to church, leave your wallet at home. you got a good excuse. And he says, well, all Christians are immoral. And I said, listen, if you're ever in a church and the lights go out, get against the wall. And this fellow who's a professor at Washington State looks at me and he goes, why are you agreeing with me? And I said, I'm agreeing with you because if God is all of these things that you say that he is, I want to help you make up intellectual excuses to avoid him because I want to avoid him. If I said to you this morning, I have a surprise for you, Jesus is in the back room, and you go, well, what's it like if I go back there and talk to him? Well, it'll be like he's there but not there. He won't help you. He'll explode. He's probably going to kill somebody in your family and abuse you. What would you say? Well, you know, Pastor Bruce really needs more time with God than us because he's delivering the messages, and let's just let him have all of our time. We wouldn't want to go be with him. And do you see why this man is like this? And you might have not answered all of those questions this way, but you do have an emotional concept of God that's different than your mental concept of God. Now, where did you get that? Where did you get that concept? Who does that really describe? That isn't God, so who is he describing? And we say it was Satan or himself, but all I did is looked at him and I scratched out God and I put Dad. And I said, was your dad there for you? And he said he was an alcoholic. I said, did he ever help you? And he said, well, he was no help at all. Did he ever explode? Did he ever take anything from you? He said, do you know that he would get drunk and make us stand at attention and he would hit us with bats? I said, did he ever take anything you loved? And he said, he got drunk one day and I was so proud of the puppy that I'd saved money for to buy from my paper route and I loved my puppy and he got mad and he took it out of my arms and he kept throwing it on the concrete until he killed it. I said, well, did he ever abuse you? And he said, well, he would always joke that I wasn't his child. By age seven, you have a concept of authority, and you get that concept of authority from your father. Do you know that I can promise you that if uh, you had a critical father, all you ever read in the Bible is what you're doing wrong? That if you had a passive father through death or through a divorce or through abandonment or through alcohol, that when the pressure's on, you don't believe that it'll come through and it'll help you? That if you had a parent that showed partiality with one of the kids and they're always bragging about the kid that's so smart and the kid that's the doctor, that you actually believe that God's going to help these other believers in here tonight, today, but he's not going to help you? We transfer our concept of God. And we live in these emotions and we treat God like this. I went through the list and the man started weeping. 
And I said, listen, if you want to reject God, that's your business, but you haven't rejected him yet. You've only been rejecting your, fa your father, your dad, who you see is the one in heaven. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love, and I had him turn to 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And go ahead and read that today. And everywhere the word love is, put God, and God is patient, and he's kind, and he bears with you. He believes in you. He hopes in you. He endures with you. And you've got to get it right that he loves you because there's processes in giving birth to this life that is in you, Christ in you. And there's going to be some pain, and there's going to be some suffering. And you need to know that it's perfect love that is taking you through all of that. And the situation that you're in today is not a mistake but it's the perfect situation and the God of love is carrying you through that. And that's why when I fail, I fall forward and I know that I fall into the lap of perfect love. And I don't let my failures hinder me. And what's the option? To wallow in them for a week, for two weeks, for a month or a year? I've still got to get up and go. This is who God is, everything in 1 Corinthians 13. And God knew you would have a false concept of him. And I looked at the man and I said, do you know he's been putting you in situations your whole life to prove that he's not your dad, that he's there, that he does help, and he hasn't exploded, and he hasn't taken anything from you, and there's never been any abuse. And God has all of us in the situation to disprove the false ideas we have about him so we can see that he's love and we can release ourselves to that love. This is a fact that he's love and these are all lying emotions. If you wait for lying emotions to agree with the facts, how long will you wait? Your whole life. The only way you change lying emotions in the fact is through faith. And you exercise your faith in the midst of a failure. You get up and you go back into the arms of love. And test me and see if it's not right that God is love. And we have to get that down. And once we get it down, we see all of our situations differently. I'll end with a little story about a fellow that I really like. And uh, he used to be for years at the train platform in Cochin, India. And his name was Michael Francis. And Michael Francis was a, was a well-known lawyer by the time he was 30. And he started walking, and when he'd walk, he had drop foot, and drop foot is the first sign of leprosy. He discovered that he had leprosy, and his wife, and at that time he had four boys, threw him out of the house. The in-laws helped, and his own parents helped, because he was cursed. And he was so depressed that he just lived on the street and he lived on the train platform. And as the leprosy progressed and progressed and progressed, Michael Francis lost all of his fingers. And I remember looking at him and all he had were the palms. And he'd lost his toes and all he had was his heels. And there was no nose there and there was no ears. And he just sat at the train platform. And finally one day the police picked him up and they took him to the hospital and they put him in there for 18 months to cure him of leprosy. And they have an antibiotic that you can take for leprosy, and it turns you as black as my jacket. And you have to take three rounds of that. I don't know what's in it, but it kills the leprosy. The leprosy was killed in him, and they called his family and said, your father, your husband, your son no longer has leprosy, and you need to come to the hospital and pick him up. He hadn't seen them for 30 years, and he said it was the most frightening day of his life. 
as he stood out there from eight in the morning until midnight waiting for someone from the family to come and to see this deformed man. And he said, do you know what? As a Hindu, I stood there in total fear, knowing I was defiled, knowing that they wouldn't come and they wouldn't want me in their home. But he said, at midnight, Jesus came and he loved me and it changed my whole life. And he looked at me and he said, see this concrete that I sleep on? See this train platform? It looks hard to you, doesn't it? I said, yeah, it does. He said, it's as soft as velvet for me because it's the love of God. And every night I lay down here and I rest and I sleep in the lap of the love of God. And I'm so glad that God loves me. He loves you this morning and it's absolute. And if you think that your behavior can change him, then you're actually greater than God. Your behavior can't. And he's walking us through the process of giving up and letting go and then resting in the arms of perfect love. Let's pray. Father, you are love and we thank you for that. Thank you for the love of God that has been shown to each one of us in this room. Just thank you for the situation that you have us in today. And pray that we might be like Elisha's servant and that our eyes would be opened and that we would see, that we would see the God of love taking us through the situation, that we would see the God of love carrying our children and carrying our mate and carrying us and carrying our world and every situation that we meet. You are love, and we thank you today that that's absolute. And we invite you to come and to fill our lives and to fill our hearts and to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves, that you would bring about the very life of your Son expressed through us. Just thank you that you're love, and thank you that you work all things perfectly, and we release ourselves that you would work in our lives in your order and that we might see you in that. Thank you for the fellowship of your people. Thank you for the love that is here. And thank you for the supreme love in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.